Hi, I'm Brittany Curran, and I play Fen on Sci-Fi's The Magicians. Hi, this is Jade Taylor. I play Katie Orloff-Diaz. Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch crew. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Podcast. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch crew, The Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we bring magic back into our lives with our promised series bonus. We're going to take a look at the series as a whole, the ratings both from the critics and from CKC, talk about some of our open questions, our thoughts on characters or plot lines that we didn't get to see conclusions to. We'll go over the character arcs over the course of our five seasons. We'll rank our favorite episodes, which is always an exciting part. We did this for our Game of Thrones series bonus. We'll give you our top five in order, and then we'll get into some closing thoughts on the series. Now, it's important to say up top, if you have not seen all five seasons of The Magicians from start to finish, this is going to be a wrap-up, our look at everything. So it's going to be filled with spoilers. If you haven't watched yet, now is a great time to go binge. In fact, there was an excellent article from TheAtlantic.com that talked about why this is such a binge-worthy show. Mm. It talked about some of its highlights, how it was able to be fun yet dark and real at the same time, although set in a fantasy world that it navigates the character's lasting traumas with deafness and realism, how it's able to address quote-unquote minor characters, and you can't even really call it that in this story. It says, quote, the magicians insist that even small-seeming characters can become heroes or villains. Nothing is static. Watching these friends come together, then split into their separate quests over and over again, feels especially resonant right now, when the most any of us can do is isolate ourselves to protect our neighborhoods and our communities. Our value for the collective has set us on some lonely paths, but like the magicians, we're all in this together. And as an homage to the magicians, this entire episode, from this point on, will be a musical. (laughs) Oh, I wasn't prepared for that. (laughs) And believe it or not, we've been doing this since 2016. I was doing some research trying to find some did-you-knows about the magicians that we haven't already spoke about, and there's not much out there. I think all of the differences from the books to the show, uh, reasons why characters' names are different, why people were hired, we've already touched upon, but I did find a few did-you-knows that we will go over. So before we get into the specifics, it's important to acknowledge that each of our seasons has followed a slightly different theme. After the finale, in fact, Chris Fisher summed this up beautifully. He said, season one, we learned magic was real. So this was our introduction to the world. We have our quote unquote theme for each season. And season one, we had it listed as the beast because that was our main adversary. It was Quentin being introduced to the world, learning magic, meeting his friends or the people that were going to be his friends, and then also learning very quickly the consequences of magic. Absolutely. And we went on that ride with him, too. I enjoyed the encompassing idea so much. It really let my imagination fly. What if your favorite book as a kid was real and you found out in your 20s? That's something you always dream about, right? You read a book about magic or a book about a a fairy tale land as a kid, and you're like, oh, I wish that was real. So that was my opening. That was the going through the fence and through the bushes, and all of a sudden you're in You go from winter to summer and everything's beautiful. That was happening to me in my head. And Sci-Fi initially did a great job of this with their website. I know eventually it kind of fell off, but in seasons one and two, 
We were introduced to this world in a different way. We had the break bills houses, the different disciplines, who all of our characters were. Into season two, we had the map of Fillory, and they took us on a different quest every week. Yeah, that website was beautiful. It's actually gone now. I oh, looked for it wow. today. It's, it used to be under Sci-Fi the Magicians under the More tab. That website and the other one that they had, the other companion site, is gone. I think it was very heavy because it always took a long time to load. It's a lot of animation. And the graphics didn't always function right. But it was a ton of fun. We went through that in season two every single time going on the quest with them. Now, season one aired in 2015, believe it or not. It's important to say that we did not cover episode by episode at that time. So if you're going back and looking for all of the CKC stuff, we didn't find it until after season one had ended and we binged it on Netflix. Yeah, the happenstance too. Christina was in the other room. I was looking on Netflix. What can we watch tonight? I stumbled upon The Magicians. I was like, huh, this looks cool. I tell Christina about it. We sit down to give it a try. And 10 minutes into it, you're like, holy shit, I read this book. I was so excited. From episode one, you can tell that it was going to be similar to Lev Grossman's novels, but they were going to put their own spin on it, which amplified as time went on, of course, as with most adaptations. But it was so great. We binged the whole season and we just did a very long Break Bills 101 that covered season one. And then we jumped into it with episodic coverage in season two. It seems like a lot of viewers did the same. It still had really big numbers 0.92 million viewers for season one, 1.29 for season two, which was its highest by far. And then it started to drop slowly after that. Season 3.78, season 4.61, and season 5.43. Now, obviously, we don't know the specifics of why these numbers started to drop, but I can give a good guess. Like many shows, if I find it on Netflix and I know season by season, Netflix will pick it up, I just wait till it goes on Netflix so I can binge it. With The Magicians, obviously, we were covering it, so we didn't do that. So I'm wondering, as more people found it on Netflix, maybe they just waited to have it commercial-free and they could just eat it all up. I mean, it could be, but there definitely was a drop. We're going to talk about season three was our favorite by far. Mm -hmm. As far as the content, the stories we dove into... Season four was definitely controversial for many. And by the way, if we didn't say it enough by now, major, major spoilers because season four was a gigantic turning point. They did something that most shows will never do. And by that, I mean they killed their main character. The end of season four, we lose Quentin Coldwater. Now, this really drove home how much they were trying to take creative risks and tell a different type of story. They had been prepping us for this all of season four, that the quote-unquote side characters, as I mentioned before, are actually just as important as Quentin is. And so they said ahead of time that season five would look into how everyone dealt with the loss of their friend, how they were managing their grief. But I think between losing that, being unsure at first, and then finding out this was going to be their last season, there were some stumbling blocks between the end of four and the end of five. Now, they did manage to pull it all together in classic magician style at the very last minute. And by that, I mean the season finale. We're going to continue talking about our ratings and how we saw the seasons as they went along. But you can kind of see that reflected in IMDb. So season one, they gave a 7.5, two and 8.4. Three, they reached their peak at an 8.7. 
4 was an 8.5, and 5 was an 8.1. So as we said, season one, we learned about magic. We learned about our disciplines and our houses. Jason, you and I both gave season one a solid nine. And our MVM was Penny. Season two, our theme was the crowns. Chris Fisher says, in two, we became kings and queens. And really, the theme of that was finding Fillory. Actually going there. Finding out that they were kings and queens of this land. And yet again, while it seems magical and beautiful and amazing, after about five minutes in, they learn... There's no wine. (laughs) (laughs) This is real. There's responsibility. There's quests. It's difficult. Yet again, magic doesn't solve everything. This is when Margot and Hale really started to learn and grow. Slowly, but they did start to learn. Hale was on uh, a mission to figure out how to grow the right grapes to make wine. (laughs) That was so funny. I love that. So in season two, Chris gave it nine crowns, and I gave it 9.2 crowns. So right there with season one. And our MVM was Quentin. Yeah, I think this is where he had the chance to shine, right? He gets to finally discover that place he's learned about in books. And while it's not everything he expected, we are exposed for the first time to going on a quest, to meeting the questing creatures, which of all the callbacks to the books was one of my favorite. I know we met a lot, but I wanted to meet even more. So in the show, we met the white lady, of course. I think that was still one of the best. In the woods. Yeah, the doe. Yes, that was cool. We met the great cock, who is maybe your favorite. Who's badass. The lizard of the dunes, which was, of course, Margot's excursion. And Sir Effingham, technically a questing beast, but you could see it sort of dropped off over time. The questing beast of the books included the seeing hare, the great bird of peace, the unseen monitor, the utter newt, the kind wolf, the parallel beetle, and winter's doe. And although he wasn't a questing beast, we did meet Lord Fresh. Yeah, he had Margot's birthright box. That's right. Which is what started all of that. He was half man, half frog. We had a couple that were not considered questing creatures. We also met Napster, (laughs) the cat-like creature that talked to Fen and could influence people in their dreams. And get you illegal music. We had the bunnies that served as messengers between worlds, and they were a theme from early on right up until the end of season five, as well as multiple other species of magical beings. The fairies, remember Humbledrum the bear. He's my favorite. We could go on and on. You know, that just reminds me, not to bring up a sore spot, we never got to see Mayakovsky again. Okay, hold that comment because there's about a million open-ended questions that we are going to get to very, very shortly. So moving on to season three, the theme was the keys. And our rating system was in keys, of course. Christina gave it 8.8 keys and I gave it nine keys. Okay, retroactively, I need to change this because by far... What the hell's wrong with you? Well, you too. Giving it the same rank as season one and lower than season two for both of us is unfair. Looking back, we loved season three the most. And when we did our top five episodes, I wanted to pull all of them from season three. So I'd like to go up to a 9.4 in retrospect on that. You can. No one's stopping you. Okay, I'm going to change it right now. What would you like to go up to? I always like to be higher than you because I'm nicer. So 9.5. All right. Well, there you go. We've revised history, folks. 
And Christina, um, my top five, one, two, three, four of them are season three. Yeah, as a teaser, I have three from season three. And in said season, our MVM was Julia. Yeah, it was really difficult in the books as well. All of book one, really. You just saw things from Quentin's point of view. And you knew that Julia wasn't going to be a part of Break Bills. She had a lot of her own struggles that she had to deal with trying to find magic on her own. And the stories almost ran parallel. It wasn't until book two that you got to see what she had been going through. The TV did a little bit of a mashup of that, which I liked, where both storylines were included in both seasons. But it took some time for her to find her own power and also to become part of our group. You know, this is something we lovingly complained about through all the seasons, that most of our characters are usually off on separate quests. We were always excited for the finale because it'd be the one time where we could get everyone together, get the group to work as a whole, and they were usually always stronger that way, right? But it took quite some time for Julia to be worked into that mix. Understandably. Yeah, and of course we did get to see the Hedge Witches storyline in that way. Yeah, I like that. And this is when Julia became a god. Mm-hmm. So this was her season. If you recall, throughout the season, once she was that powerful, we kept saying, I wonder how the Magicians is going to handle this. Because whenever you have someone that's too powerful, you can't write stories around it. Because basically they can erase anything. Nothing's really a threat. I do remember being upset that she lost her powers and why she had to lose them. Because we're idiots. We being part of the group. Well, and this is, I think, what got so many people angry with Alice as a character. Yeah. The conclusion of that season. And it was really difficult to get back on board with her. But terrific storytelling. I mean, Rotten Tomatoes gave season three a 100%. Ooh. Chris Fisher says, in season three, we rode a ship around the world in search of adventure. And let's not forget the Munchak, which was also so prominent in season three. The fairies. I mean, just about a million storylines that we loved. The dragon. Yeah. But then we go into season four, for which our theme was the old gods. And our ratings was in rations because this is the season we lost magic. Chris, you gave season four 8.4 rations. And I gave it 8.7. I'd like to sit firm on that. It's, it was a good season, just wasn't as good. It was bound to be a letdown after season three, right? And then on top of that, you don't have magic. The reason we watch this show, I remember reading the novels, and this is the point I was so frustrated. How long do we have to mm. go out in the real world where it was depressing for the characters? They didn't know their identity. They didn't have magic to try to help themselves. As dangerous as it was, it was so much worse without it. Here's the thing. The show made this more interesting by incorporating the library a lot more, by having that be sort of an institutional thing that we were going up against. We have the McAllisters in the background trying to steal magic in these really dark ways. She never came back. <laughs> Sorry. Hold. <laughs> and then we had the monster, or as we come to find out later, the twins. Which was not a fully fleshed out storyline. That really pissed us off because the whole season we were trying to guess, and we were having fun doing it, what god is this monster yes. or descendant of? And we had really good inside looks about real life Greek folklore. We were able to analyze different gods throughout the season. Not just Greek, Greek, Roman, Egyptian, Mesopotamian. Yeah. We went into all of it. Now, granted, we knew we were probably getting off on sidebars with a lot of these things. But I did think in some way the old gods were going to play a larger role in this story. It made sense. We had seen them before. 
they were bringing in characters like Hades and Persephone from very early on. Yeah. And they were always setting you up for this showdown between them and the younger Ember and Umber type gods. In fact, there was some of that going on behind the scenes, but we never got a chance to really dig into it as much as we thought they would. And I think that was our big disappointment for season four. Major letdown. Maybe we did build it up too much, but still I feel deeply that the writers could have written in a backstory. They didn't have to take a whole season. It could have been revealed as the story went around, went along. Well, and also Chris Fisher says season four, we lost someone we love. So we had to contend with that too. And our MVM was Alice. If you asked us a year before that, if Alice would ever be an MVM, we'd be like, hell no. Well, the redemption <laughs> storyline, I think we really enjoyed following that along. Mm-hmm. But finally, we get to season five, where the theme was the world seed. And our rating was in surges because magic was back now, but we had too much of it. It was out of control. The circumstances were wrong. It was all about figuring out how do we get it to work for us again? The ultimate goal of that, of course, being the world seed and building a new world by the end of it. I gave this season 7.8 surges and you 8.2. Again, I stand firm on that. We're always going to enjoy the magicians. But at this point, they were battling themselves, like we always say. So now you're grading based off of the best you have. To give an analogy, I'm going to throw it to sports. Michael Jordan was one of the greatest basketball players ever. He could score 42 points three games in a row in the playoffs. But then if Michael scored only 30 points one game and missed a few, people would be like, man, he had an off night. But any other player who would score 30 points, they're a really good player. They're doing well. That's what I mean. Season three set the bar so high that by the time season five came around, we were no longer grading on a curve. But our MVM for season five was a tie for Margot and Elliot. And how fitting that the only tie of all the seasons is split between the two of them, especially given that the season ends with them separated. Yeah. Maybe one of the biggest shockers and heartbreakers for us, but still very emotionally resonant. So where does this put the ratings overall for all of the seasons? If you average it out, IMDb is at an 8.2, Rotten Tomatoes a 91%, me an 8.7, and you an 8.9. I say that's a win on all accounts for a TV series. And that feels very right to me. You know, thinking about how season five ended, if I wasn't lazy when it came to writing, because I hate writing, you know that, um, I would actually have some fun doing fan fiction and making a season six of what happens from this point on. That would be a hell of an adventure. Hmm. But I am too lazy to write anything down. <laughs> hint, hint, Chris, we'd like a fan fiction, please. Oh, dear. Well, we need some magic to get me some extra time. Well, what if we give you Rita Skeeter's powers from Harry Potter where the book writes itself the while quick she talks? Quote, squill. Yeah. Even better, just get me a time turner. Okay, there you go. So that concludes our thoughts on season ratings. And I'm going to disperse our did you knows between the segments. So I'm going to give you one now. To be honest, we did know all this. So (laughs) (laughs) okay, I think it's fun anyways. Well, we discussed in the past from season one that there is no Janet from the books. Instead, Margot is called Janet. And the reason our writers changed it was actually because there was too many J's in the group. Mm -hmm. We had Julia, we had Jane, and then a Janet. Josh. And a Josh. And actually... Once they did change it to Margot, Lev Grossman said, I like Margot better. I wish I did do that. <laughs> there is too many J's. It's a good name. But the show did give us a little wink way back in the day in season one 
when the group falls into the library in the Netherlands, the librarian calls Margot Janet mm-hmm. before she corrects her. Did you know? <laughs> I warned you. We probably knew all these. It's still fun, though. And now we're going to move into our biggest category, open-ended questions. We're going to start out with characters. Some of these we put in there, and a lot of them were write-ins by Clatcher. So Carter says, what happened to Professor Hamish Bax? He is, of course, in the books, the chair of the botany department at Breakbills, only a few years older than Quentin, who is teaching there in the books. And he was very helpful for about two episodes and mm. then just disappeared. And very interesting as a character who was interacting with Alice. Yeah, they played well off of each other. I'm going to say he got a grant at another prestigious magical yeah. university and decided there's too much stuff going down at Breakbills. It's curious if you think about it. We always joked that the professors never helped our students, <laughs> especially Dean Fogg in the beginning. Now here we have a professor actually helping I think perhaps he was always meant to be kind of a one-off character. And we are going to have a lot of those in The Magicians. I think they're so well-written, we get attached to all of them. And we want to know what's going on with them. Not all of them were really meant to come back. Here's the problem with some of those things. For certain characters, they laid tracks to have you believe they would come back or they would be important later on. And we always said, well, we trust The Magicians, right? That they're going to do that. Not always the case, and part of this could have been because we ran out of time. Maybe there were ideas, and I would love to see that book of plans that they had eventually when our characters might run into some of these people again. Sure. Like Mayakovsky, I want to know what the plan was going to be for him. So Brian wrote in to ask that exact question. First, did he ever reverse his brain swap with his future self with dementia? If you remember, that was a plot that they brought in there. Oh my goodness, I forgot about that. And what was going to happen with that? He asks, does the timeline break if he doesn't? Because things wind up differently. And there are some instances where we flirt around with those timey-wimey things in The Magicians. You know, creating separate bubble pocket worlds and time universes and how does that all work? I think they chose to skip past a lot of it, such as the going back and forth between Earth and Fillory which I am forever grateful for. That was something that frustrated me to no end in the books. But as far as what happened to Mayakovsky and also his daughter, I'm not sure. It was kind of weird that that was their way of bringing him back in the end to just introduce us to his daughter, somebody that we never knew existed before, and yet not actually see him. Yeah, I'm wondering, this may be just the realities of life. Maybe they couldn't get him. Maybe he was already booked at a job, so they couldn't even get him for one scene. Or maybe they didn't have it in the budget. Who knows? So I can imagine that they're saying, we got to link him in somehow. What if he has a daughter for that scene? I'm going to chalk it up to that. I think it's just real life circumstances. We actually covered Mayakovsky in a character review back in season three. And the fact that he was hinted to be one of the strongest magicians, if not the strongest of the time period. Perhaps why we were so interested in him, but also just his personality makes it a lot of fun. An interesting nugget that we had found here. In the Magician's Land book, it is revealed that he created many wonders and treasures from fairy tales, some of them contained in the Museum of Mayakovsky. As a refresher, those included a perpetual motion machine, a pair of 7,000 league boots, one drop of universal solvent suspended in the air via magic beans, a pen that writes only the truth, a mouse that aged backwards, 
a goose that lays eggs of gold, silver, platinum, and iridium, a way to spin straw into gold, and that gold into lead. Remember, these are coming from fairy tales. And a player piano that improvised according to the listener's mood, optimizing itself until it was the sound of everything you ever wanted to hear. Wow. Quentin had made him turn it off before he broke into tears. Oh, wow. I can imagine getting pissed off at that piano. Because when you're in a bad mood, you don't want someone being like, he's in a bad mood. <laughs> Basically, with music, would be like, shut up! <laughs> Oh, one of the best things, though, it was rumored that he helped in the war against the old gods in the Netherlands. Wait a second. Why did we never get to see uh, that? That would have been cool. Riding on the back of a great white dragon and shattered the bell jar, keeping the weather out with thunder and lightning from his own hands. So He's the man. Like you said, if we're going to do this spinoff series, I want the Museum of Mayakovsky an episode each of his creations, inventions yeah. that he made, and the culminating thing to be a recreation of this battle with the old gods. I like that. But also maybe Mayakovsky's the one that helps our crew find the new Fillory and link it up again. Maybe he already created a world of his own that he's gone to. When he saw all of this going down, the same way our magicians created one, maybe he figured out another way to do it, and he pieced out he's off in this other magical land. Yeah, I can see that. Or he's just hibernating. He can become a bear after all. Brian C. wrote in to say, whatever happened to James, Julia's boyfriend? Now that's a throwback from season one. I think if we were ever going to see him, it would have been when our magicians lost the magic and mm. they were thrust back out into the real world. Maybe that would have been a good opportunity to bump into him. Yeah. I think he's living in a giant peach. <laughs> oh, dear me. Um... Now, how about Harriet, Zelda's daughter? Which is a good question because that's one we had wondered at. Zelda didn't get a chance. We wanted to see her have a last interaction with her before she sacrificed herself. I'd like to think she's out there living her best life. I don't know exactly what she's doing. I'd like to think she's at peace now. Maybe she, you know, she's at peace with her mother and with um, the inevitable guilt that she probably has for leaving her mother and the library. Even though she's doing what she wants, there's probably still an underlying guilt. I just enjoyed seeing Marley Matlin on screen. I think she's amazing. Her portrayal, yeah. As well as Magina Tova, their relationship, their chemistry together on, on screen. I mean, you buy that that's her daughter and that they've had all of these problems together. It's very emotional when she's trapped in the mirror world, the bridge, whatever they called it. But now that you speak about Zelda, I really like the fact that she went from us feeling that she's an uptight librarian <laughs> in the beginning to she's a bad guy to one of our heroes, one of the good guys. Uh, one of the biggest ones, the sacrifice that she wound up making at the end, I thought was a really beautiful conclusion to her storyline. So we didn't get that final wrap up with her daughter, but overall, I think it was one of the most satisfying stories for any of our characters. Very sad to lose her, of course. Another character that we did not really get wrap-up to was Poppy. She was a nuisance, <laughs> but she was fun to watch on screen. Well, she was pregnant, and I think she just started her own life. And we had started wondering, was it Quentin's child? That wasn't right. Maybe that was too difficult yeah. for them to broach that topic after losing Quentin, and that's why we never went back to Poppy. Or maybe that was only ever meant to be the duration of her storyline. I wonder the same thing about the McAllisters. 
I mean, while it felt like we had a satisfying conclusion to the fairy story, it was weird that they brought them back in season five, but kind of not really. Yeah. And of course, that does make you think about the McAllisters, and their name was brought up in season five. It's like they were edging towards reopening that storyline, and then they never did. I think I would have felt okay if it was closed and they hadn't brought it up again. I'm wondering why, if they thought they were going to go somewhere else with that. I think they did, because if you remember when the fairies finally were set free, and they come into the dinner where all the McAllisters and all the rich people that still had magic because of the fairies were killed. But then, of course, Irene escaped. There has to be a reason for that. And maybe they just didn't have the time or the means to go back to that storyline. Then when we saw the beginning of season four, when our heroes were living normal day-to-day life, if you remember in the background, there was the newspaper. And she was like mayor or something or president. I forget. And I would have liked to, if we're going to leave off... Just think that she completely fell out of power. She's got no more support system. She's got no more fairies to get magic from. It's like when we found out Reynard was out there delivering pizzas. Yeah. I want to picture that that's just what's happening. But again, they, they bring these little hints, these little clues in, and it almost makes it more frustrating because we're trying to figure out when are we going to come back to them. Speaking of when are we going to come back to them, Jason, I think one of the biggest ones, Brian C. says, what did the candy witch do with Quentin's blood? Yeah, so this was something we harped on, I think, season three. Every podcast I kept saying, what about the blood? And then I just said to myself, I'm going to stop asking. There has to be a reason it was so random. This witch wanted his blood. What does that mean? Does that, you know, we started thinking, well, maybe that's how he comes back to life. Mm-hmm. Maybe, let's talk about our um, fan fiction. In this new fillery, we last saw them when they were just about to bring all the Florians back to this new world. Maybe the witch is one of them. While they're going around explaining to them, I, I, I have to assume they have to explain to everybody, okay, this isn't really fillery. It's a little different. And then like one of the Florians are like, I smell bacon. <laughs> and then Josh is like, oh yeah, that's the field over there. You can feel free to eat that. And then the witch comes up to them and says, thank you for saving us or something. And as a token of my gratitude, she, puts, she drops the vial into a cauldron. And outcomes. The problem Quentin. with this, we don't want to bring Quentin back. Like, as much as we miss him and we were constantly looking for loopholes about how they might get Jason Ralph back on the show, this was such a beautiful conclusion to his storyline. And I love him talking with Penny, picturing that he is going on somewhere. He's not going to stay in the library, in the underworld working. Maybe he's going to their version of Elysium. He could never find his happiness here. Even finding magic and finding fillery and all of this stuff. Maybe he is finally happy okay. wherever he's gone. All right. I like your story, your version. And then you bring him back and he's like, guys, what the hell? <laughs> I'm not here to help with the new fillery. Enough of this already. But I think the reason you're saying it became so prominent yet again, what the show did was put it back in your mind. You're right. Season three, they had Ember mention it in the opening dialogue. The very beginning of season three. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So it's like, oh, remember that? And then people kind of got stuck on it all over again. <laughs> Carter says he was a little frustrated with the lack of closure for the Hedgewitch plotline. Everything they did with Katie at the end of season five seemed a little like an afterthought. We didn't get that nice wrap up. And we said the same thing, that last scene with her. Oh, yeah. Was a little bit shortchanged. 
you knew that she was going to be running it still and perhaps had an interesting future, but... I got to say, Katie uh, didn't have much to do all season. Yeah, and I wanted to see, again, some better closure for her and Penny that we never really got, especially with Penny 23 hanging around and getting his happy ending with Julia. Yeah. You're constantly thinking, oh, geez, man, what about Katie and Penny 40, though? When then we go see Penny 40 in the underworld, and he's like, he's doing all right, but it's not that great. Just trying to avoid brunch invitations from Benedict. <laughs> Hades has peaced out. He doesn't know what the heck to do with the underworld in the meantime. Um, I would have liked to have gone back maybe even to the underworld a little bit more. Well, speaking of Katie and Jay Taylor, I just saw this on Twitter a couple days ago. Ruby Rose, who was uh, Batwoman for a season, has stepped down and... Jay Taylor put it on blast on Twitter. I would love to be the new Batwoman. Oh, wow. And there's a lot of people, a lot of fans saying that would be great. You know, she already knows how to fight, which we discussed in season five. Um, why not? So that's something interesting to keep an eye on. Let's see if Jay Taylor becomes the next Batwoman. All right. Did you know time? Hale Appleman said in several interviews that he first auditioned for the role of Penny. And Arjun Gupta originally auditioned for the role of Elliot before they each received the other role. In a March 2016 interview with The Observer, Hale Appleman said, My best friend gave me the books when he heard I was auditioning for Penny. The one-line blurb about Penny was that he was punkish, but with a clockwork orange-like attitude, which is something I feel like I could connect to. But that's not the whole picture of the character. In the end, I'm glad they switched. I could see Hale Appleman being Penny, but I can't see Arjun being Elliot. I mean, I guess I could see both, but it just would have been a very different story. We've talked before about Book Penny and how different he was in certain ways. There was that whole plot line of when they were first given their entrance exams, when they got to break bills, much to Quentin's surprise, Penny passed after 20 minutes and they were paired up. Him, Quentin, and Alice as the three given the chance to move up early into the second year class. And so as Alice and Quentin become closer, Penny starts keeping to himself more and more. They kind of go at it a couple of times, yep. Penny and Quentin. And one of the big things that I had been hoping, speaking of open-ended questions, to see was the way they sort of ended things with Penny in the books, that you find out his hands were taken off. He lost them the same way as we saw in the show, but it was lasting. And after that, he chose to stay in the Netherlands. During the fight with the old gods, he proved himself capable and was promoted to be librarian of the order in charge of the Netherlands. And he had these spectral hands, almost like they weren't real, they were magical. And of course, he was able to perform other types of magic that he had learned along the way. Sphincter magic. And we talked about how he kind of became a critical part of them being able to save Fillory in the end. So we got a very different storyline, but as you say, it was a very different type of Penny character in the series. One that we loved. We equally loved both versions of that, and we talked to Arjun many times about it. I think in many ways, the TV Elliot was also very, very different, that they took both of these characters even further, and I really enjoyed I think a big part of that was what the actors both brought to their roles. Well, that brings us very nicely into our next segment, which is character arcs. About this, when interviewed, Sarah Gamble said, We spent so much time with all the writers together. Then between the two of us, meaning her and McNamara, passing pages back and forth. First and foremost, we wanted to make sure, in this last season, that our eyes were on each of our series regulars. We asked ourselves repeatedly, 
Where was Alice in episode one? Where was she in episode six of season one? Somewhere around there, she has a little speech about how she's afraid to even peer at her own potential because she's scared she'll be alone for the rest of her life. Then we very much had where she started in mind when we arced her towards the series finale, where she finds herself a master magician and understanding the truth of where all of her potential comes from. We had her a bit handicapped for the big piece of magic she has to do. That's what proves she's been able to step into a place where she's confident and willing to go there, not holding anything back anymore. We did a version of that for each one of the characters. Uh. So they really thought about where did they start out, how have they changed over time, and thus what's a good ending for them. McNamara made a funny comment saying, At some point, I'll let you into the vault. We have a document that may someday be available on eBay. That's the arc of season six. Now, he was kidding, but is there any truth to that? I have to wonder because he's always sort of half kidding. You have to believe they had ideas in mind, thinking that they could get picked up by another network. For sure. They probably have somewhat of an outline. You can imagine they have paragraphs and notes of ideas of what these characters are would go through in season six. And so they talked about Alice. We talked about Alice that we found that one of the most satisfying because you really do see her entering into the story afraid of her power. I loved that scene that she went through with Quentin and Fillory where she finally let it loose for a minute and grew the tree. And you saw what she was really capable of. We always knew she was capable of great magic. Obviously that terrified her for many reasons, one of which being... She was a Niffin for quite some time. Yeah. Also a great story for her. Where she comes back around to, like you said, having to follow this redemption path in seasons four and five, having to come to terms with her relationship and the loss of Quentin, and then her own power, which she thinks is gone when she loses her fingers. That was a little bit weird because we assumed that wasn't going to be a permanent thing. It was very quickly kind of rushed past the way they handled the couple. I might have liked to see that done a little bit earlier, but her grappling with what does this mean for me as a magician, getting the answers from all of her mentors that she puts together in the very end, that she still is enough and she still can do great magic, I think was really beautiful for her. And of course, each of the actors acknowledged this. They had video clips on Sci-Fi's website of them saying goodbye to their characters, what they've meant to them and what they hope for them. And I think it puts a nice bow on the idea of a character arc. Olivia Taylor Dudley said, Oh, Alice Quinn, I wish you a long, happy, stress-free life. I'm going to miss playing you. I think you are one of the strongest, most intelligent women I've ever come across, and it's been an honor to play you. I hope you find peace and happiness. Maybe, I don't know, learn to meditate, go on a (laughs) retreat, get some massages. Just generally pull the stick out of your ass. Seriously, I will forever miss you. But jokingly, that was a big part of Alice's arc too, right? Just learning how to be in the moment and enjoy life. Absolutely. In season one, she didn't want to speak to anybody. She was very aloof. If you remember uh, Quentin trying to talk to her and she kind of runs away. Yeah. Uptight for sure. But now she knows Santa. (laughs) (laughs) Well, next we'll move on to Elliot, who in this article by The Atlantic I've been referencing says that his character at times can be shallow and one-dimensional in the books. I think a lot of characters by necessity aren't aren't explored as deeply as, let's say, they can be in a show that's five seasons and 13 episodes per season long. And so Elliot is one who really gets a chance to shine, but also Hale Appleman's performance, as we're raving about 
portrayals bring so much to this role. They say that in the show, he becomes a scene stealer who battles substance abuse and self-loathing. He demonstrates this through his brief romantic threads that even magic can be meaningless without the courage to surrender oneself to love. And that is big for him. This relationship that grows with Margot while they've always been close, really allowing himself to open up to her and understand her better for them to be a team together. Mm. And now they're separated. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to think that was really the great love of his life, the relationship that he shares with Margot. But he is still going to be searching for a romantic love that fulfills him. And so that's where we leave him off in season five. We were maybe not entirely thrilled with the idea of him winding up with Charlton, although it's not exactly like he winds up with Charlton. This opens him up to the possibility that there could still be intimacy in his future and that it could be meaningful with somebody who really cares about him. Yeah, I guess it just felt like it was wedged in there. Mm-hmm. It was by surprise. We didn't see it coming. I think out of all the storylines of our heroes, it's the most depressing. Mm-hmm. Elliot, of all people, I don't think would want to be a professor. You know, I think he would be happy with Margot in the new Fillory. He doesn't have to be King Elliot. He could be, well, I guess he could be King Elliot, but Margot is actually the leader. The ruler. Yeah. There is some poetic beauty, though, to the fact that it was Quentin in the books who winds up the professor at Breakbills, reluctant. He doesn't have anywhere else to go. He mm. sort of settles for this. And due to Elliot's longstanding love for Quentin to wind up in that same place back at the beginning and needing to figure himself out on his own this time, yeah. there is something nice about that. Now, Hale Appleman, in saying goodbye to this character, says, thank you, Elliot. For nonstop, unexpected adventure, complexity, and depth. I'm grateful he allowed me to paint with a wide variety of colors. For always having something witty to say, and for finally being able to confront your demons and move through the scariest parts of your shadow. Ooh. Well, that brings us to Penny. Arjun Gupta. It's interesting because Arjun says, goodbye, Penny 23 and Penny 40. Mm-hmm. My message to you is the same. Thank you for letting me play in your world. To 23, I hope you enjoy being a dad. To 40, I hope you have some fun at Benedict's Brunch. I thank you both for your growth and ability to open up to people. Yeah, and I think very beautifully portrayed, but quite differently with both characters. So you do have to look at both of their arcs separately because they were different journeys. Yeah, they're different people. As we said, Penny 40, I think finally did find that piece a lot earlier that he accepted this position in the library and this was going to be his life now. My favorite closure of a scene was his last scene with Quentin when he meets him there. And you're thinking to yourself, oh, this is his purpose. This is why it's so important. Interactions like this are what Penny Forty gets to do now. Again, bringing him back in season five with that weird interlude with Josh and the Hades situation... It was almost like opening it back up. And I'm like, no, 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 just leave Penny Forty over there. As much as I wanted to see him, it didn't give me as good of closure on that character. But I think we did get some really great closure for Penny 23. And let's open up our fan fiction again. I think that Hades is still on vacation, but he had to return for a little bit to help. And I believe he put Penny in charge this time. He actually did it the right way. Penny's in charge. Zelda's coming down, Hmm. so they're going to work together. That would be fun. And he's going to make a long-distance phone call to Q. How about that? (laughs) Well, and Penny23 
finally figures this relationship with Julia out. He's going to become a father. He has come to terms with that because of his own struggles with his mother and his powers as a traveler. Mm. Not only that, but they're going to go off and look for their friends and go on adventures. As close as you could get to a happy ending, Penny and Julia got it. Absolutely. And I believe once they find everyone at the new Fillory, I think they're going to choose to raise that child in Fillory. Now, as we mentioned, for Katie, we saw that she was back with Pete and working with the Hedge Witches, keeping a moon lunatic on retainer. So she was going to try to help them, we have to assume, get more ability to manage magic on their own instead of the way they've been pushed into this box for so very long. Yet another storyline we would have liked to see a little more of where that's going. I mean, it summarizes her character on the website by saying she sees only darkness. And I think for the first time, maybe she's seeing hope and possibility in being able to work with this group in the future. We do have to believe she has gotten resolution to the relationship with Penny Forty. Again, that's still one open thing that I'm not entirely fulfilled on. But Jay Taylor said thank you to her and that believing in this crazy character, all of her twists and turns, she found her strength throughout this process. And because of it, I found mine. Yes. And unfortunately, like we said already, I feel like Katie was lost in season five. I'm going to pretend that one episode where she (laughs) has a fight in a bar doesn't exist. There's certain things that they put in there that honestly make it even harder you know, as we've been talking about, to feel okay about where they wind up instead Mm -hmm. of making it better, it makes it a little bit worse. But that is the struggle when you don't know, is this going to be a season ender or a series ender, I think. On to Josh, who had one of the more satisfying arcs. And quickly became one of my favorite characters. Yeah, was really the epitome, both him and Fen will talk about it, of side characters in the books that became a lot more central in the TV show. And I think they did a really great job of just... Folding that in quite naturally, it didn't feel forced to me. Mm -hmm. I agree. Uh, We got humor from both of these characters throughout, which was great, but they weren't just comic relief. Trevor Einhorn says, To Josh, I will miss your innate ability to always find the good in any situation. I will miss your cooking. No one can deny you were a fantastic chef. (laughs) That's true. But I will mostly miss the ways you brought a smile to a group of friends who really needed it. Absolutely. And... The bow on that for me was his closing conversation with Elliot when they were in the restaurant together. Yes, yeah. And I think that just showed so perfectly why Josh was an integral part of this group. Yeah, and it really makes sense now that you look back at everything. All that Josh, it makes sense that Josh would be in this situation for that God who feeds off of enjoyment. Mm, Bacchus. Yeah, Bacchus. Because he brings enjoyment to everything, especially a party. And he was so important, this relationship him and Margot developed together. I think neither one of them would have been able to find the things they were able to bring out in each other on their own. Much like you needed the Margot Elliott relationship to really see those things, you also needed this relationship. I think that's why we were a little frustrated with the side thing that happened between him and Fen. Again, throwing something in there that really disrupted our definition of what we thought was happening with the characters. I think they were able to stumble their way around that into the end. It was still maybe a little rough. But Fenn also finding an amazing conclusion. Brittany Curran puts it perfectly. She says, Fenn was born to be a side character and ended up a hero. Oh, yes. And we in our Clatchers grew to love Fenn more and more. In the beginning, when we first were introduced to her, she was meant to be naive, flighty, 
really a side character that we shouldn't really care about and should feel bad for Elliot to have to be with her. Yeah. But it turns out she's one of the more stronger, never mind just women on the show, just main character. Well, yeah, and you bring that up because her initial purpose was to be wed to the High King of Fillory. I mean, that's really what her father was grooming her for her entire life. That's how we were introduced to her on this show. But yeah, as you said, later by this season five, you're feeling incredibly bad for her. What's wrong with Elliot? That he's been not only ignoring her as a partner, but nobody has been giving her any attention to the power and the ability she can bring to the group that we all had to come to realize this season. Absolutely. And Margot, why were you so mean to her, remember? Oh, but that relationship too was just brilliant. And I mean... Partially, she was mean to her because she found out that she slept with Josh. So that's true. I forgot about there was that. A, their sword fight. I mean, there were just some great. Again, Margot had some brilliant pairings these past couple of seasons. Her and Fen was absolutely one of them. Yeah, and let's not forget, it's because of Fen they were able to create Fillory too. Mm-hmm. Well, and he's not on this list. I'm talking about Dean Fogg because there wasn't a clip from Rick Worthy saying goodbye to his character, uh, but also. A very, very interesting arc from finding out that he's the only one that remembers 39 timelines, trying to help our characters out. So hard. I mean, he went through a lot. The show didn't even give us enough time to figure that out because it couldn't. It wasn't about Dean Fogg. But yeah, he went through multiple timelines, seeing his pupils die time and time again to once they finally figure it out and they finally defeat the beast... All these other issues keep coming. It's no wonder that he decided to stay in the world of bliss. The etheric realm. Yeah. And then we got to see a Dean Fogg who caved into the pressure. Looking back on it, I actually enjoy that. I like the fact, because it did did bother me at first. I was like, this is my Dean Fogg. I don't want him to be this mean. But looking back on it, this is what would happen to the human, the magician Dean Fogg, if he did cave. He had his demons. Both of them did with alcohol. We also got to see his badass moments with his Inspector Gadget type suit that he puts on. Him finally coming back around the end of this season to help save the magicians, which is what he always does. And it's now my life goal because our podcast will be really big if I can get Dean Fogg's voice. So now I'm going to uh, start drinking a lot. I'm going to eat cigarettes while smoking cigarettes. And I'm going to get that deep voice. It's going to be awesome, guys. Okay future goals. (laughs) Well, but the biggest thing, you know, you do wind him up sort of in the same position, yet again, talking to Lipson at break bills saying, why can't anything ever be easy? (laughs) Um, It's going to still be struggles in the future, but sort of doing this recap on where all the magicians wound up and thinking that because they still have magic on earth, the group must have accomplished creating the wellspring again. They must have succeeded. So finally getting to see, at least in some way, shape, or form, this group of students who he has mentored this whole time have succeeded. They have created a new fillery. Finally, Summer Bischel did not have a goodbye here to Margot, which I would have loved to see. But we absolutely got to see this incredible journey for her. She's the queen now. She, she earned it. I can't. Remember how many times we had her as MVP for episodes, but it was many. And it's not just her funny remarks and her amazing costuming and her relationship with Elliot and all of this stuff. Finding her own strength, going on all of these twists and turns 
that she constantly just keeps accepting no matter how hard it is, I'm going to step up and I'm going to do what needs to be done. Makes her the Margot that we love, right? You know, I really wish we got to interview her. Mm, I I know. I think Summer would have been great. Maybe we can still get her. I think it was a lot of fun talking about, thinking about her character throughout all of these seasons. Do you think I can get Summer to fall in love with me? No. No chance? I'm going to say that's a hard no. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up Quentin. Because while we lost him in season four, he was with us for four seasons. He was, if you want to say anyone was a main character of this show... Jason Ralph's portrayal, we talked about it over and over again, the many different sides of Quentin, the many different Mm. things he went through, how incredible it was to watch him on screen. Again, The Atlantic has some really good things to say about this. They say that Quentin embodies the interplay between retreating inward and looking outward. Unlike most of his classmates, he is such an unremarkable magician that his specialty goes undetermined for years. His most notable gift may be his obsessiveness for the details of Fillory, the books, and his affection for the reality of the world as it actually exists. Quentin doesn't grow in power, but he does develop an understanding for the relationship between the characters in the Fillory stories and the real-life journeys that he and the other magicians are on. His passion for those quests is eventually redirected towards his friends. In many ways, Quentin's great escape is from himself. The Magicians is a love story of a young man learning to look beyond his own darkness and fantasies to devote himself to his friends, who are just as worthy and some more worthy adventurers than he is. With a new gap in this carefully knitted crew after the death of Quentin, much of season five oscillated between mourning for him and apocalypse hopping. But at its close, the series again offered the promise that even after great loss, a bit of magic can be saved. The world itself may be altered forever, but those who are left will start anew. And I think without Quentin's entire journey, as well as his death, you don't get that from the whole story. So talk about a major arc, even after he's gone, still affecting the plotline of everything that comes next. Christina, did you know that the set used for Dean Fogg's office after season one is a recreation of the set used for season one? What I mean is... In season one, they actually used a house, a real house. But then from that point on, they used a set Mm. and they just recreated it. But that same set is also used for the Breakbills Library, Mm -hmm. the lab classroom in season one, episode one, other various classrooms and Breakbills South. Oh, and Breakbills South. That one I didn't know, actually. I knew they used it for a bunch of different purposes. And it's always interesting with the shows we follow to find out what's a set, what's a real place and how many different ways they can reimagine one location. Well, that's pretty incredible. And with that, we'll go to maybe our favorite part of these bonus things, and that's to rank our top five episodes for the entire series. Yeah, and this is going to be hard because there's so many. There's probably things I forgot. I mean, there's absolutely things I forgot about a certain episode that when we inevitably watch it all over again, Soup to Nuts on Netflix, I'll be like, I forgot about that. Oh, my God. This is my favorite, you know. When we did this for Game of Thrones, we had five, but then we were going. But also there was this episode and that episode and honorable mentions. So, yeah, it's really hard. But I have picked out five and I'm going to go from five to one. Okay. So I'll lead up to my most favorite. Number five, I have season four, episode 10, all that hard, glossy armor. And this is Margot's journey in the desert. So we start off with her licking the lizard oil, which makes her see hallucinations of her subconscious manifested as Elliot, her id, Josh, her guilt, Fen, her lost innocence, 
Katie, her inadequacy, and Dean Fogg, her wisdom. This was a tremendous episode. And, Christina, believe it or not, your top five list is a musical. I can't believe that one made it on there, but if it was going to be any one of those, this one makes the most sense for me. I really felt that they found ways to incorporate the music into the storyline and character arcs the best for that. Um, Looking at your notes now, because I haven't seen your list till this very moment, we're on the same page for most of these. Well, let's go back and forth. So now you tell me, what's your number five? My number five is Be the Penny, season three, Mm -hmm. episode four where Penny gets to see just how his friends would react to his death. <laughs> Do you remember that? It was a, he's like, you guys, I just died. How come no one's talking about me? Great one-liners in that one. While he's hurt that nobody appears to be mourning, he forgets they've all got a lot going on and no time to process their grief. That's because everyone is still on the hunt for the magic keys. It's not until Elliot gets a hold of the key for truth that anyone knows Penny's spirit is still lingering. Do you remember how that episode ended? Elliot picks up the key and he sees... Oh, yeah. And then it it blacks out. But of course, by then, he's already decided to burn his body and move on to the underworld. Mm Mm-hmm. Fantastic episode. Okay, my number four is season one, episode seven, my only from season one, The Mayakovsky Circumstance. Hmm. Where in the form of geese, Quentin and his peers fly to Breakbull South in Antarctica to study with Mayakovsky, who puts them through several challenges. I think that's, that's up there for sure. I forgot about that episode when I was writing these, unfortunately. So I don't have it on there, but I'm going to put it as one of my tops. Um, it, it's, it's up there, number six, maybe. Yeah, what I did was I started off with just thinking about the entire series. I did not look at lists to begin with. And I thought about what are the moments that really stand out for me Mm. and then tried to pick what episode do they belong to. So thinking about Margot wandering around the desert and seeing Elliot's image and then finding these ice axes. I was like, okay, all that hard, glossy armor. Then I remembered them turning into geese and the description we talked about from the books, what that was like. We always reflect on that episode. I can't believe I forgot about that. Them being turned into foxes. I mean, really learning about magic in a different way for the first time from Mayakovsky, who's going to go on to be one of their greatest mentors. And just the location of Breakbill South was always super interesting to me. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm with you on that one. Well, my number four is all that hard, glossy armor. <laughs> nice. And it's memorable because that was our second interview with Arjun the week before this episode came out. And he was telling us, giving us hints of, um, of the ice axes. Mm. Remember that? Which was a weapon that came in and out of play. And I really like that they brought that back. For season five, for sure. You know, we think about that episode and really what I'm remembering are those moments. And I had talked to you about that being the best part of Janet's storyline from the books when she mm-hmm. finally, very, very late in the storylines, goes on that journey in the desert. Yeah. And there were different things that took precedent. So she had to find all of those little pieces of metal within the sand, which we do see Margot flirting with that storyline, but it went in a totally different direction in the books. But I often forget that there was a lot of other things happening there too. While she's going through this, meanwhile, the monster is looking for a body for his sister. Alice gives Julia the binder. Zelda finally believes she's being lied to. Quentin, Julia, and Penny try to find Elias, only for the monster to appear and kill him, taking the last stone. Remember when he shows up and he yeah. just kills Elias? I mean, there was a bunch of other storylines happening. For sure. And we got to see Dean Fogg sing for the first time. 
Okay, on to my number three. And again, my top three episodes are from season three. Could not help myself. This one is season three, episode seven, six short stories about magic. Now, partially this was amazing because the format was different from anything we'd seen before. There were these six short stories, all kind of isolated within one episode. Penny travels to the underworld to find Benedict and the key. He encounters Sylvia working for the library in her afterlife, sees Cassandra, by the way, another side plot we forgot to talk about, oh, yeah. who can see the future and writes everyone's stories. This is oh, how they wind right. yes. up with those stories for their life. Then Quentin, Katie, Harriet, and Poppy travel to the Underworld Library with the help of Traveler Victoria, who makes a bridge to the Mirror World. And this is where we get the whole Mirror World plot line. Victoria and Harriet seemingly die when Gavin breaks the bridge. Now, it's important to note that this was also the episode where when we were seeing all of Harriet's scenes, there was no sound, really. And so we talk about this a lot, how incredible it was. The moment where the bridge finally breaks is where the sound came back. Yeah. And how we almost fell off the couch (laughs) because of that. That was crazy. Oh, so well done. And it's also the episode where it's revealed the McAllisters are using fairy powder to give them fairy magic. I mean, just one thing after the next. That episode was tremendous. And believe it or not, Chris, that is my number three as well. Wow. Season three, episode eight. You have a seven, but it's eight. Oh, is it really? Yep. So you know what? You're no longer a fan. I misnumbered, I guess. I was looking on Wiki. I want to watch that episode again. Honestly, this is making me want to just... Let's go downstairs and watch everything. Uh, by far, again. that was one of the best episodes. I mean, that's why we're doing this ranking. Well, Jason, my number two is Be the Penny. I was not surprised it was on your list, but surprised it was so low on the list for you, just because Penny is one of our favorite characters. But everything you were saying, I agree with. That's the, another episode three. The in- season three. Yeah, the in- my top three are all season three. Uh, the interactions with Hyman, Breakbill's board of directors closing the school. In that episode? Oh, that's right. Respectfully, hate the fact that you said so low because it's the top five. So even being five is not low. Uh, it's number two for me. <laughs> so you could leave this up to Arjun, but uh, I think he's going to agree with me that Be the Penny should be higher. And second only to, I'm not going to say, but the best episode in the series. <laughs> I'm going to let you give your number two first and see what beats out Be The Penny. This is crazy how similar we are because we both had the one musical app. Yep. Being then, the same musical yeah. app. We well, both my had number- Be The Penny and we both had six short stories. Yeah. My number two is season three again, mm-hmm. but episode 12, The Florian Candidate. Okay. So the, where we differ, I had Mayakovsky Circumstance and you had The Florian Candidate. But I love Mayakovsky Circumstance too, though. This is so hard. Well, remind me what was in that episode. Alice is working for the library, who is not happy with Julia's godlike status. Remember when Alice was was in cahoots with Zelda for a little bit? Yes, I do. Julia's power continues to grow. She's even able to grow an entire forest of trees. Mm, Amazing moment. Meanwhile, in Fillory, when Margot and Elliot attempt to make a new deal with the Fairy Queen, she declines since they aren't royalty. That leads to their attempt to rig an election which doesn't go exactly as planned. But Margot does, however, end up elected to the position of High King thanks to her being on the good side of the talking animals, more specifically... Humbledrum. Humbledrum. Yeah. Exactly, Chris. This was a great episode. I don't remember, was it this one or 412, where we open up with 
Ember recapping oh. their nicknames, but saying how it's different now. Oh, so good. I <clears throat> Shit. I don't because remember Because I thought about that and thought about including it. Actually, you know what? I think it was a 13. Now, this is surprising to me. So far, neither of us have a season finale in our top five. And generally, we rave about how the season finales of The Magicians jam-pack a ton of things. And they are really, really memorable. It tends to be when we defeat a big bad or when our group comes together. I think they always feel so rushed to me, though, because it's as though they've been waiting all season and now they throw a million things at you at one time. I believe that season finales for the magicians always... I always had an issue with, actually. Season three's finale, I was pissed off, if you recall. Because I felt like everything that they learned during season three went out the window. The gods didn't matter that much. Season four, we lose Quentin. Yeah. Although, another awesome musical when and, they're singing around the fire. And let's not forget the elevator scene. The elevator scene. It opens scene. up and there's Penny. And we're like, holy shit, it's fucking Penny. So, I mean, we were we always feel torn. We're upset because we're losing Quentin and all this stuff that we can't believe. But there were parts of it that were incredible. To recap... Season one, the finale was Have You Brought Me Little Cakes? Yes. Where Julia and Quentin travel to 1942 Fillory, Mm. but are followed by Martin Chatwin. The end of this is they have to fight the beast Mm -hmm. to save the wellspring of magic. Season two, it's We Have Brought You Little Cakes. Ember's bored of Fillory and intends to destroy it. We find out about Umber's pocket world. That's going to come back later. The old gods shut down magic. Yeah, if you remember... um the handyman comes in mm-hmm. and just shuts off the pipes. So I hated that moment. That was <laughs> never going to wind up on my list. Season three, it's Will You Play With Me? So the castle at the end of the world, Alice destroying the keys. Again, a moment that made me so mad yeah. that that one's never going to wind up on there. The monster escapes and possesses Elliot, which takes us into you know the way we open up season four with the rations. Yes, but to be fair, that final scene was awesome. Season four, as we said, no better to be safe than sorry, losing Q. IMDb gave that one a 7.1. And this, season five, Fillory and Further. I mean, if any finale were to wind up on there, it would probably be this one, Fillory and Further. Yeah. The way they closed it off with Margot being the last person to speak. Uh, And it just goes to black. So good. But Jason, none of that is the number one, and I'm betting... Both of our number one one is the same. In fact, I'm betting if you pulled 99% of viewers on this show, they would say the same. A A life life in the the day. day. Absolutely. The two go on a side quest for a key that involves creating a mosaic. Their quests take decades. The two friends live side by side, grow old, and raise a child together. Elliot and Quentin develop real feelings for one another. Because of the fantastic nature of time travel... It all technically happens in another universe that they only initially remember pieces of. It's both heartwarming and heartbreaking and speaks to the depths of the relationship between the characters in the series. Also, after Elliot dies, Q finally solves the puzzle, but gives the key to a young Jane Chatwin so she can fight the beast, really bringing everything full circle and receiving the message, Margo is able to get the key from an adult Jane, now living in the Clock Barons, and returns just before Q and Elliot are about to travel back. This synopsis says, erasing the timeline where they live together, even though they both retain memories of it. So this synopsis would have you believe that by Margot stopping them from going back 
it deletes that timeline. Oh. Which would resolve a lot of stuff about what about their child? What about the stuff that happened there? Yes, they remember it, but it no longer exists in this separate world. Just out of selfishness, I'm saying it still exists out there. Well, it exists for the two of them, of course. We know. We see their interactions later. When Quentin dies, we see Elliot throwing the peach in the fire. Just some of the most emotional moments, but also some of the most visually beautiful, watching the house that they live in, watching mosaic in different formulations that they put together, trying to figure it out. The costuming of making them look older. I thought they handled that really, really well. And that's a hard thing to do, believably. And in different stages, you get to see them aging up. I mean, anytime Quentin and Elliot were on screen together, it was amazing. Of course, we have to mention this created a lot of problems for the show moving forward because people were constantly asking, Are we going to get to see these two together? When are we going to go back to the storyline? Even when he died, they felt there wasn't successful resolution to that. Mm. And I think that's what makes us upset, seeing the point that Elliot wound up in. But he's never going to get to be with Quentin. Yeah. Right? Which is what he really wants. But I think just taken in a capsule, as we said, most people would say it was the best episode The Magician's ever created. Absolutely. Chris, who was your favorite character not being human? I mean, that's hard. The fairy queen stands out to me. Somebody that we thought we really hated in the beginning. Yeah. And had such a fleshed out storyline. The Munchak ship. That's mine. Was if you were wondering. pretty incredible, really. Yeah. All of the questing creatures, but I mean, the great cock was amazing. There's so many great creatures. Um, the reason why I really like the Munchak ship is one, they didn't give us too much of it. So it made left room for us to just imagine what else the ship could do or say say, quote-unquote. And if you think about it, in real life, human beings put so much personality into their boats and things. They call it a name. Uh, it's always a woman's name. She's rocky today. She's, she's grumpy today if, if the engine's, you know, stalling or something. So it kind of makes sense that now we have the Munchak, which is a ship that has a personality that's a little spiteful and can get pissed off at times. I have to give a shout out because you're saying this, you know, we did top episodes, but certain moments or things that don't wind up in there like this, your favorite non-human creature. Yeah. Favorite musical moment while 410 wound up in the list, in isolation, the Under Pressure song. Oh, yes. I think maybe goes down as the best musical moment. For sure, because when you and I are just cooking or something and we start singing that song out of nowhere, or it comes up. I'm always thinking of the magician's version. Yeah. Which means it was done perfectly. I've known this song for my whole life, but why am I thinking of the magician's version every time now? Well, take on me. Uh, same thing, Camp campfire, the sitting around the fire saying goodbye to Quentin's song. Oh, yeah, that was good. Moments-wise, I think about the depression monster. Oh, yeah. Quentin having to act that out. Jason Ralph having to act out the different side of Quentin. Him arguing with himself almost. We raved about that scene. As we said, the mirror bridge part of six short stories about magic. Quentin finding the garden, the drowned garden in Fillory, which was different in the books, but that winds up being where he discovers the world seed. Yeah. 
and seeing that these plants respond to human emotion and so some of them aren't around anymore because people just don't experience as much awe and wonder <laughs> and how there's a plant there that actually represents how he felt when he first learned about fillery. Mm. Just such a touching moment. And then finally, the first time we really see the beast when he comes through from the other world and time just slows down. Oh, yeah. And all of the moths around him. Maybe one of the most terrifying scenes in The Magicians, a time that it was actually kind of scary. And he continued to be, I think, the greatest villain all the way up to the very end. Having him be the last villain in the very end was great. Maybe the best thing they could have done. Perfectly done. Even though he wasn't able to do much once they brought him back because it was the last freaking episode. Yeah, but having this be his brother the entire time, Rupert Chatwin. That was great. Who we have been seeing all season. And having him, we didn't know it, little did he know, working behind the scenes against his brother and all of the magicians all of this time. Yeah, I I think it's perfect that the Chatwins were brought back into the mix because we thought after the Beast was killed originally, that's it. That's it for the Chatwins. And then we, we saw Jane a few more times, but now it's like all in the mix again. Any other just standout isolated moments for you? I'll never forget Quentin first going through that fence and walking into... Oh, finding this world? Yeah. You often talk Break to bills. about him doing the magical card Card thing. tricks, yeah. That was beautiful, too. There's so many great scenes. This show, I, I, I'm so sad that it's, it's done. Uh, just being able to relive it now. I'm glad we waited to do this podcast because it's like we get to relive the best of it all over again. What about the moment we brought up with Arjun for funny moments? Stuff touchers? Yes. When him and Quentin are in the flying forest and they're high? That was perfect. That was hysterical. (laughs) Well, we also asked our Clatchers about their top three rated episodes because we know that five is hard to do. And we did this for Game of Thrones. We didn't get a ton of responses or they were all very similar. So here we just asked for top three. Lewis said, season three, episode four, Be the Penny. Mm-hmm. Season four, episode 10, All That Hard Glossy Armor. There you go. Yep. And season three, episode five, A Life in the Day. There you go. So all of the same on our list, but he gives an honorable mention to a finale. Season four, episode 13, No Better to Be Safe Than Sorry When We go. Lose Quentin. And also talking about... For that rendition of Take On Me. Take On Me. Talking about moments the moment of Quentin's death when time slowed down and he was being pulled back. Oh, yeah. And Alice was yelling and... That scene was amazing. I mean, just visually, that was quite a beautiful moment to see on screen. And Lewis also puts puts in, I wish Netflix would pick it up and give us a better series ender. Uh, I think it's done now, but we were really hoping that Netflix, we signed that petition. We were hoping that something would happen. I was hoping that they would pick it up to keep it going. But if it's as far as where they're going to stop it, I was pretty happy with that final scene, the sure. final closing out of me too. everything. Brian C says 410, all that hard, glossy armor. Margot's full potential is realized and has such great musical performances. 403, Great Q story from losing his soup spoon to finally checking his voicemail. Now, this didn't make it onto either of our lists. He's talking about the bad news bear, where Margot finds out Elliot is being possessed and stops the monster's attack by agreeing to help him on his quest, which winds up in the death of Bacchus. Katie and Penny try to retrieve a black card and Dewey's by using the luck spell. You know, whoever holds the teddy bear has 
all of the bad luck. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. The spells fail to override Julia's divinity, so Quentin takes it. And Alice stays at the library to find her friend's book and ends up getting kidnapped. This is where Santa escapes through the chimney. So yeah, that was definitely a standout episode. But he says, finally, the number one, be the penny. I really understood the style and humor from the last scene when Elliot says, oh, hey, Penny. (laughs) (laughs) It was a good one. Great one. And Elliot comes in to say, number three, 410, all that glossy armor. That's on our list. Number two, season one, episode two. Which was the source of magic. Oh, wow. Where they start investigating the incident of the beast at Breakbills. Julia meets Marina when she has to pass the test to join the Hedge Witches. Mm. Katie secretly is found out to be working for Marina. It's kind of the beginning of all of that. And number one, season three, episode five. A Life in the Day. There you go. And Elliot questioned, what happened to the blood the Candy Witch took from (laughs) Quentin? Yes. Yes, we all want to know that. Damn it. And I know we all wanted to continue, but maybe a spinoff could happen. This series was amazing. It did so much to help so many. And I'm thankful for it every day. It changed my life for sure. Changed ours as well. We have to remember every so often to bring magic back into your life. (laughs) Well, those are great lists and definitely, you know, a life in the day coming in the top would be the penny, a contender. We also have some final Clatcher's comments, not just rankings of favorite episodes. So going back to this last season, our musical, The Balls, Percy's owner wrote in, to give a little piece of information that I don't know if we ever mentioned on the podcast, the fact that the showrunners initially wanted to use all Prince songs, but they were unable to obtain the rights. That's right. So they say, I'm not familiar enough with Prince's catalog to know what they would have chosen, but I suspect the disconnect on the songs for the story could have been because they didn't get to use the songs they really wanted. That would make sense. They were finding like last minute options. Yeah, that would make more sense because we were finding that disconnect uh, confusing. Mm Mm-hmm. Then Marlowe's wrote in to say, after re-watching this season, I have to ask, wouldn't the magicians have known Lance couldn't come back from the underworld since he wasn't there? Our magicians met him as an evil ghost in the closed building at Breakbills when they were looking for the keys. In season one, we learned that souls with traumatic events get stuck, i.e. the kids at the Chatwin house, and they don't go to the underworld. Did I miss them telling the Dark King why this was a bad plan, or did the writers just miss this plot hole? The Dark King, a.k.a. Sebastian, a.k.a. Rupert Chatwin, was trying to get his long-lost love, Lance, back from the underworld. That's the whole reason they had to come up with this entire scheme. Before he finds out that he was foiled, that it was actually his brother, Martin Chatwin the Beast, the entire time, Marlowe's is bringing up a good point. Why didn't he realize he wouldn't have been in the underworld to begin with? This is why his spirit was trapped in the Breakbills building, because he was a ghost. I didn't even think about that, yeah. And I would have to say, I don't think it was a writer plot hole. I think it was the fact that Rupert didn't consider a lot of things in doing. He was just so desperate to have him back. Blinded by the light. He wasn't thinking about the reality of anything. Yeah. In the end, he was a good guy. But lost. Very lost. Now, why didn't any of our other characters, our magicians, think about that? Especially because they encountered Lance's ghost? Well, because... Elliot found out, um, they, I mean, they found that out at the last minute. Pretty late. Yeah. What were they going to do at that point, I guess? Well, and finally, Brandon wrote in to say, Hey guys, I just wanted to thank you both for the shout out on the Magician's Finale episode. 
I also wanted to explain further what I meant about you pulling me back into the magicians. I stopped watching around the middle of season two. I had caught up with the show at that point and never watched it live, but I found your podcast at the end of GOT and loved it. When I found out you also covered the magicians, I decided to give a listen. It was your coverage that made me go back and finish season two before three rolled around. I've watched every episode live since and waited patiently for every (laughs) podcast. I am proud to be a Clatcher. I love the community you guys have built. I can't imagine the work you've put into all you do, but I appreciate every bit of it. I'll always credit you with reuniting me with such an amazing show from some guy in a small town of Indiana. Oh, that means so much to us. Someone tell (laughs) Sci-Fi because we would love a studio to pick us up and help us out. They don't have to pay us. Just give us screeners a couple days before the show airs so that we could have a podcast out right after the show airs. It'll only help them. But the fact that we were able to help in some small way to bring someone back to this show, yeah, I'm so That's amazing. happy to hear that. You know, there were times where we were a little frustrated with the show too. If we hadn't have been covering it for a podcast, maybe we would wait till it dropped altogether on Netflix for the season and binge it like we did with season one. But it was just such an amazing experience. We always talk about the fact that this Clatcher community seemed different for this show of The Magicians. It was very close-knit. You guys always writing in and being a part of our interactive stuff, the polls, getting actors on. These were the first actors we ever got on for interviews, and it was all thanks to you guys. It was that digital water cooler we always talk about. And I'm sorry if we're repeating some stuff we said in the series finale, but... It really is what made covering this show a joy. Not just because it was a great show, it was, but it wouldn't have been the same without all of these other things, the community that we shared it with. Amen to that. The fact that you guys are here, you guys are listening, and you're a part of the crew keeps us going. Christina, can I give you one more did you know? Please do. You knew this, but did you know (laughs) that Lev Grossman is actually a twin himself? You know, I think I heard about this a long time ago, but forgot. His brother is Austin Grossman, who is also a novelist. Mm. I wonder what he writes. So when he created Ember and Umber, who were the twin ram gods. Oh, I love that. He was thinking. Maybe a take on certain things from their relationship. Yep. Uh Uh-oh. What's going on in their relationship? (laughs) Who's Ember and who's Umber? I would love to talk to Lev. I've heard him interviewed by other podcasts. Sounds like he's really open to discussing things, social media. A lot of times you don't see authors being that active with their community. And especially, like we said, the spirit of the books is always present in the show, always. But it became its own thing quite a long time ago. The show diverged in many ways and created their own versions of where these characters would go. And I always wonder, as an author, would this be amazing to see or would you be upset on some level? These characters were taken in different directions, but he always just seemed wondrous yeah. when he talked about it, excited. Oh, I never thought about this or this was so cool to see on screen. So, I mean, always we have to give a huge thank you to him because that's where this source material came from to begin with. But also a huge thank you to the actors who came on the show. Yeah, It was wonderful to interview Jade Taylor. Brittany Curran was so much fun. And Arjun came on three times. We talked his ear off for hours on end. I mean, that really added to our experience of the show as well. And maybe we can, uh, during our break, we'll have uh, someone else on. We'll Mm -hmm. see if we can. But Chris, that was really fun reliving it. And I think it's inspired me to go watch it all over again on Netflix. 
I mean, listen, first things first, you need to finish the books. <laughs> yeah. And to everyone out there, if you're feeling a little hole in your life because the show is done and you haven't read all of the books yet, this is a great way to experience it in a different way, I think. Uh, but also just going back and re-binging, like you're saying, all the seasons. That's what this article on The Atlantic was really about, why it's so binge-worthy, particularly at this given time. And I just want to do one last quote. They summarized it by saying that The Magicians is a story made more powerful now, given our current circumstances. At a time when many of us are experiencing our own moments of sadness and anxiety, The Magician series can be the escape that the fillery books were for Quentin. If both the books and show teach us that in some ways, magic consists of the doors we allow ourselves to walk through, whether to Fillory or other worlds, the series created even more doors by concocting a fantasy realm sweet enough to save and friends dear enough to die for. The show deepened the stories that the magicians could tell you about who we become thanks to the journey and thanks to each other. I mean, I thought they just put that better than we probably ever could. Uh, why we have enjoyed it so much, why this has been a spectacular journey to go on, and why you can always keep revisiting this and keep it in your lives, even though there's not new episodes. But hopefully you also keep following the CKC and you stay with us as we go on to our next journeys. Because as we said, it really has been wonderful interacting with you all. And while we may be on to something new, there's always going to be some of the same structure for anything that we do that you're probably familiar with. And don't forget, <laughs> we're over on Patreon. Go to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon, and join us at any tier to get more podcasts from us. We have the coffee break, we have bonus episode every month, and we have a movie review. And if you join us there, you know that you're helping Christine and myself out to continue doing this. Well, plus you're going to get lots of great content. And particularly now, while there hasn't been any new movies at the theater, we've been doing some fun throwbacks. Recently, we covered The Fifth Element and Stranger Than Fiction, two great movies that maybe we wouldn't have gotten the chance to discuss except for this. In our bonus, we talked about the top 15 weirdest theme parks in the world. <laughs> I mean, we're really traveling into some uncharted territory, but I think it's been a ton of fun. And we had bonus... Uh never before heard of Lewis Hertham interview segments mm -hmm. from our podcast. So it was really fun. So to get all that and more, join us over at Patreon. So to close it out, just remember to keep that magic burning. And remember, there's always a little bit of Quentin, Julia, Penny, Josh, Fen, Margo, Alice, and Alice in ourselves. Take it away, Chris. Wow. <laughs> all right. Until next time, this round's on me. This round is on me. Try again.